This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The Group of Seven, or G7, summit in Cornwall, England, wrapped up on Sunday with Western leaders making effervescent pronouncements about global cooperation, sending warning signals to Russia and China, claiming a crackdown on global tax havens, and patting themselves on the back for taking bold action on climate change. But climate justice leaders from around the world roundly denounced the G7 for utterly failing in its responsibility to the world, even as carbon emissions continue to dangerously rise and time has all but run out. In the run-up to the UN climate meeting in Scotland this November, dubbed COP26, democratically elected Western leaders seem to have let their citizens down once more. We turn now to Tasneem Esop. She is the executive director of the Climate Action Network. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Sonali. So if you look at what the G7 leaders have said on their summit website, they talk about, you know, if you believe them, they've taken great actions and great steps. How do you assess what exactly they agreed to on the issue of the climate and why, in your eyes, has it not been enough? Well, they announced climate finance. Um, They announced their own actions to reduce emissions and they also announced actions to deal with uh, their energy transitions so let me comment about each of those announcements they made a collective commitment to fulfill the obligation of providing 100 billion us dollars per annum a commitment that they made nearly a decade ago and has remained unfulfilled. And they were supposed to deliver this by 2020. They did not fulfill that obligation. And so this G7 essentially committed to commit and fulfill their commitments, which they haven't done. So obviously we are extremely disappointed with the kind of lack of details or concrete numbers from each of those G7 countries coming out of the G7 meeting uh, this past weekend. So certainly on the climate finance, much left to be desired, does not lay the basis for the kind of trust that needed to be built up, especially with developing countries, ahead of the COP in Glasgow um, at the end of the year. So on the climate finance uh, announcement, certainly very disappointing. In terms of the climate ambition to halve the emissions collectively by 2030, I think that that is an important commitment. Uh, Very pleased to hear that they recognized that 2030 is the essential timeframe and did not only deal with this kind of long-term announcements around net zero by 2050, which they all, of course, um, are committed to and have um, pushed quite firmly. But I think they are starting to realize that, in fact, to achieve any net zero or to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050, of course, they would have to act in this decade. And the science is pretty clear about it as well. So they've made this commitment in the G7 meeting, 
we of course will have to monitor the implementation of that. So certainly the G7 is known to make commitments uh, and as you said, these kind of big announcements and very often uh, it is really short on implementation. On the energy front, the announcement about phasing out of fossil fuel and cutting in, uh, sorry, of coal and cutting out uh, uh, spending investment uh, in coal, that's an important step. Again, though, it falls short of what the IEA, the International Energy Agency's report, recently said. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's a very clear message that we have to stop all investments in all fossil fuels from this year. And in, in this regard, developed countries would have to act first and fast. So just looking at phasing out coal does not go far enough in terms of the energy the kind of deep energy transitions that we require rich nations to go through almost immediately now on the issue of coal i'm glad you brought that up the united states which under president obama had uh, vowed to transition out of coal uh, people fully expected the biden administration to resume that especially given that his predecessor trump of course championed coal but i understand that biden did not do that and when uh, reporters dug into why he didn't do that it turns out that a single senator from a coal producing state in this case west virginia senator joe manchin is maybe the reason why the biden administration um, didn't want to clearly and unequivocally say that coal has no place in the energy future of the united states so politics basically how do you view that no, well, of course, that is an important, um, uh, that's important to shine a spotlight on because many of the kinds of decisions or commitments that governments are making or political leaders are making is also very much linked to the kinds of vested interests that are pushing these agenda, often invisible. It is really important that we make transparent these vested interests. And of course, the coal interests, the lobby for the coal sector is very, very strong. Um, and I am almost sure that, you know, there's obviously kind of funding that goes towards politicians, etc. So certainly vested interests play a huge role in the decisions that uh, governments take, the commitments they are able to make. And, and not only is there a problem with the contradictions around coal in the US, and Biden has actually, you know, said he's fully committed to the climate agenda. He's taken some initial good steps in that regard, a very strong domestic agenda. But there are contradictions when it comes to energy transformation. And so um, in some cases he has for example, um, you know, said you won't continue investment in certain projects. But on the other hand, there are currently domestic battles on certain pipelines that continue um, to, you know, these projects that continue in the US. So this is going to be an ongoing battle. And it is very exciting to see local activists take up these fights 
on an ongoing basis in a very courageous way, because if our governments cannot come out with the kinds of um, decisions that we need to address a climate emergencies, and certainly it will have to come through the power of people. And, and yes, that's what's going to happen in all countries when governments drag their feet. The uh, G7 was meeting after a a terribly um, destructive year with the global pandemic. And you have commented on the commitments that they made or didn't make on vaccine sharing and the sharing of not just vaccines, but vaccine technology. Of course, we know that in a future uh, where climate change, catastrophic climate change continues to unfold, we're going to see more and more infectious disease outbreaks, greater migration, more threats to public health. What is your, uh, can you share with us your comment on and your reflection on what the G7 did or didn't do on actions to combat the global pandemic? It was immensely disappointing. I I have to be honest. Um, I was quite shocked that they, the seven most wealthy countries in the world, could not step up and demonstrate real global solidarity when it comes to a global crisis like this pandemic. And so, firstly, I mean, you know, uh, the vaccine Uh, commitments that they made, they're going to roll out uh, 100 billion vaccines. There's a real shortfall in that, firstly, that doesn't meet the scale of the need. And secondly, and more importantly, there's been a strong push by some developing countries for these rich nations to um, waiver the patent rights so that they can manufacture um, the vaccine as well, so that we can get scaled up vaccine rollout and vaccine equity uh, across the world. And they refused to do that. And so that was a very disappointing um, outcome. But I think it is even more disappointing if you view the this experience of the global pandemic and how especially rich nations have conducted themselves in terms of dealing with the pandemic in relation to the rest of the world, if this is a dress rehearsal for how they will conduct themselves in a global climate crisis, then we have got much to be worried about because there certainly is no indication that there will be global solidarity, that there will be sharing of technologies, that there will be financial support for those who are under-resourced and incapable of actually dealing with the impacts of climate change. So that is an additional concern that I would have, that they have not demonstrated through their conduct in this big global pandemic It's a global crisis, it's impacted everybody, but certainly it has impacted some much more than others. And again, you know, these impacts are being felt in the most vulnerable countries and communities across the world. And this sense of, uh, you know, we will take care of our own, we will give you our surplus, we're not willing to give you these rights, to, to technology uh, and, and patents uh, because our corporates are more important than your health is the signal that's basically being sent. And so is that the signal that will be sent for how they're going to deal with the climate crisis? And if the fact that they were unable to deliver 
a commitment of 100 billion per annum by 2020, 100 billion per annum by 2020, then surely there's not much of a track record for us to believe that their conduct will be any different in handling the climate emergency. So the COP26 meeting is taking place in November in Glasgow. Um, this is the UN climate conference where the nation, the world's nations come together to try to do something about climate change. The G7 sometimes is seen as a preview of that, of course, albeit it's just the wealthiest uh, seven nations of the, on the planet, whereas the COP26 brings together all of the world's uh, nations. And it was the Paris Accord in um, 2015 whose, uh, whose, whose timetable these nations are supposed to be meeting. What do you expect needs to happen? Or rather, what do you think will happen at the COP26 in Glasgow? Will it be just like the previous COPs, COP meetings have been, a commitment to make a commitment to someday in the future fulfill some nod toward climate change? Well, I certainly hope not. Look, it's becoming clear that, you know, we are in a climate emergency. Um, what uh, we are now dealing with compounding multiple crises, and we are going to have to see global leadership and governments have to step up. So I certainly hope that this is not going to be a kind of usual COP, that people recognize we are now five years after the agreement, the Paris Agreement, we needing to have already seen very, very strong implementation of the Paris Agreement. This COP is meant to, of course, finalize some of the outstanding rules of the Paris Agreement, some important ones. Uh, these rules are obviously meant to strengthen the kind of architecture or the climate regime under the Paris Agreement. Um, and if they're not going to finalize these by this COP, then certainly it will um, have an impact on the levels of ambition and action that we all need to take and especially governments need to take in terms of addressing the climate. But what, what we are wanting to see, uh, so beside the fact that they have to sort out these outstanding matters, what we really want this COP in Glasgow to deal with is the issue of finance and especially finance for adaptation finance for loss and damage. Now we know that loss and damage in these negotiations have been something that especially the rich nations have been trying to avoid. In Paris, in Madrid, you know, these negotiations have broken down. But we cannot avoid the harsh reality that people are already suffering losses and damage due to climate change. And as I said, with the COVID pandemic, these losses and damages are uh, further exacerbated um, and people's lives are devastated, livelihoods are devastated. It is just such an immense, immoral and unjust experience that we're witnessing, uh, especially by those who are most vulnerable, mm -hmm. that this COP has to rise to that occasion and governments have to actually say what they are going to do to address this matter. So certainly finance 
is going to be a really important issue on that agenda. Loss and damage is going to be an important issue on that agenda. And certainly, um, we do also want to see how countries are going to increase their levels of ambition to address this climate emergency. Finally, Tasneem, will, uh, do, do you foresee that there will be the sort of usual gathering of climate justice activists in uh, Glasgow at the COP26 to hold uh, governments and their representatives feet to the fire? Um, in previous COPs, we've seen that. But of course, um, it's, it's a tough year. The global pandemic is still raging, even if here in the United States, where I am based, things are slowly, you know, coming back to normal elsewhere in the world. I imagine where you are, you're in Cape Town. Um, it's still a very serious situation and just traveling to other parts of the world is likely to be a huge challenge. But of course, that's a huge reason why these government representatives often are shamed into doing the right thing because they know there's people standing out in the streets holding the signs, shaming them, holding them accountable. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Sonali, of course, everything right now is so uncertain and so unpredictable. We know that the UK COP presidency has said that they are going to host a physical meeting. They've got their plans in place. We were given a briefing about logistics, but there are such important unanswered questions. So for example, you know, it's not clear uh, when people who are traveling to the UK will have to quarantine, which means that there's an extra 14 days, um, which, you know, many from uh, developing countries, 14 days of additional accommodation that needs to be paid for, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're not clear about the levels of participation, the numbers uh, of, um, that will be allowed into the COP of civil society or other observers, you know, so that's also unclear. We're not sure what the pandemic will be like at that time of the year. That is completely out of our control, even out of the control of the UK presidency. So there's too many uncertainties at this stage. The presidency has been talking about a hybrid COP, so it could be physical and virtual, but we know we've just come through this uh, three-week session, um, intersessional of the UNFCCC. The virtual format is also complicated, you know, it is um, also comes with the challenges of time zones, uh, connectivity issues, etc. And it's not conducive for real negotiations. And it is absolutely not conducive for observer participation. I know that the UK uh, civil society groups are planning quite a number of activities in Glasgow. Again, they are also looking at the different situations in case the COP isn't uh, the kind of COP that we are used to. Tasneem, give out a website for your organization, Climate Action Network. So it's www.climatenetwork.org. And we'll post a link to climatenetwork.org from our website. Tasneem, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck to you. Thank you very much, Sonali. Thank you. My guest has been Tasneem Esop. She is the executive director of the Climate Action Network. We've been discussing the G7 meeting that just wrapped up in Cornwall and its failure to address climate change effectively. I'm Sonali Kolhatka. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com where you can sign up for our newsletter and watch all of our video interviews. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.